the COO Lounge powered by PFI Advisors. Here's your host, Matt Sonnen. Welcome back, everyone, to episode 19 of the COO Roundtable. We are still at home. We're still wearing our masks. We're still social distancing. Uh, in fact, PFI, we permanently moved out of our office space this past weekend. We were in a, uh, a shared office environment. There were multiple businesses operating on the same floor, and it just didn't feel safe in the new environment to have a lot of outside people outside of our tiny little circle of, of just our employees milling about and using the common areas. And ironically enough, we had spoken to several movers that were going to come in over the weekend and, and move our furniture and equipment for us. And one of them called us late last week, and he said, I'm so sorry. Two of my family members that I live with, they're in the hospital. I'm going to need to quarantine myself. I'm not going to be able to help you move. So it's still out there, people. I know everyone across the country is tired of sheltering in place. Everyone, myself included, we're all chomping at the bit to get back to normal. But we keep watching these numbers of cases still fluctuating here in Los Angeles in particular. We're still at all-time highs. So please stay vigilant, do what you can, and protect yourself and protect those around you. But I'll, I'll step off my, uh, my soapbox. <laughs> I, uh, I can say that we have two industry heavyweights joining us today. This is going to be a fantastic discussion. We have Michelle Setford is the COO at Hightower. We all know that Hightower has made significant changes to their business model over the past few years, and Michelle joined as COO last summer. So we'll, we'll talk about all of that, Michelle, but thank you. Thank you for being here. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate the invite. Glad to be here. Great. And joining Michelle is Mike Reed from Dakota Wealth Management. Mike is the COO and managing partner working closely with Peter Ramondi. Everyone knows Peter has had a long and successful career in the RIA space. Mike joined Peter two years ago from outside the industry, and we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit. But uh, Mike, thank you so much for being here and sharing your perspective with our listeners today. Hey, Matt. Thank you for the invite. I'm honored to be on, on the show with Michelle. Thank you. We'll start with Michelle. Um, as I said, everyone knows Hightower, but things have changed quite a bit recently. Everyone is intrigued what you have going on there. So Michelle, can you give us an overview of Hightower? Sure. So Hightower has, has been in existence for just over 11 years now, and the business model obviously has evolved quite a bit. I joined the firm last summer, as you mentioned. Um, we at this point have about $57 billion under management with 108 different advisory businesses, and within those businesses, we have over 225 advisors. The firm obviously started, a lot of people know the history, focused on warehouse breakaways, and that history really has evolved completely to we are now really focused on advisors. We consider ourselves an investment advisor advisor at our heart and soul with services within our company to provide service to investment advisors. We are, we are not in the breakaway space anymore. And the M&A focus we have now is really uh, investment advisor businesses. Clearly, uh, inorganic growth is key to us, but we are very diligent not to take our eye off of organic growth. Um, 2019, we had just over 9.5% organic growth, which we feel is, is pretty healthy given the industry where that number is in the, the low digits, but we're not done. You, you know, and you'll find as we talk today, a lot of our investments and initiatives are around providing value-added services to our advisors to, to help them grow organically. Again, appreciate the time with you today. 
Great. And Mike, Dakota Wealth, with Peter's name associated with it, Dakota Wealth definitely gets its share of headlines across the industry. Can you tell us a little bit about the firm? Sure, Matt. Yeah, that's a big advantage for us, right? Makes my job a lot easier. We founded the firm in 2018. We currently have $1.2 billion under management. 30 staff members, 30 team members, we like to call them. Actually, 27 of them are partners. They have equity in the company. We service primarily high net worth individuals, those who have a desire to have their wealth evaluated and managed holistically and individually, including their investments, estate planning, and tax planning. So we offer all those services. We've grown pretty quickly. So we launched in 2018 with approximately $450 million under management, and we've increased by about 170%, mostly through top-line growth over the past two years. We are growing right now, looking at how we've done in this this year to date by about 15% organically. Non-organically, it really, uh, you know, it just depends on, you know, what the future holds with respect to our current environment. We are eager to merge with firms that are like-minded, but we're very selective. We turn away from probably 80% of the merger candidates that we meet with early stage because they're just not a cultural fit and then are very careful in our due diligence process. So we don't really have any growth goals. We feel that's kind of limiting, just kind of let it come. We could be $2 billion by the end of the year and $5 billion in the next two to three years, or we could be $1.5. We're, you know, we're just going to see how it goes, but our culture is so important for us to protect. So that's what we're doing, and two years in, and we're having a good time. Great. And as I mentioned, you joined Peter from an entirely different industry. Can you tell us about your transition into wealth management and how your outsider's perspective has helped you in this new venture in your career? Sure. Yeah, so it's a little interesting in my background. I'm a classically trained medical practitioner and quickly realized that business development, team building, and being entrepreneurial were truly my calling. So after I earned a master's degree in orthopedic rehabilitation, I went on to get a doctorate in organizational management with a specific emphasis on spine surgery. So I had a 28-year career in medicine. I developed 14 ventures ranging from LLCs to C-Corps and nonprofits, including a national nonprofit. In 2011, I merged my medical concierge firm with Hospital for Special Surgery out of Manhattan. I joined their executive team, and that was a lot of fun, helped them develop their southern footprint. And after spending three years with them, was offered the position of executive director for the North American Spine Foundation where we established international presence and congressional support for our initiative. I did that for three years, and you know that was really a, an eye-opening experience with respect to fundraising and managing these national initiatives, and had a lot of success. We moved our operations to Chicago, and that was under the auspices of a large professional surgical society. And we wanted, my wife and I, and we have two boys, we wanted to stay in South Florida, so I launched a consulting firm. And during all those years, during those 28 years, my dearest friend was Peter Ramondi. We've been friends for almost 30 years now, and we've 
we're very close in many regards, and we got to see each of our careers evolve over time. And in 2013, Pete approached me about becoming COO of Banyan Partners. That was the firm that he owned at the time, and it just wasn't a good time for me, and I wasn't available. In 2017, when Pete was sitting on the sidelines after leaving Boston Private, which is a private wealth, Boston Private bought Banyan Partners back in 2014. In 2017, Pete was sitting at a non-compete, and he approached me about the idea of Dakota. And the time was right, and my career was at a point where it just seemed to be an exciting opportunity. And so I decided to leave the field of medicine, and I've been in the finance profession with Pete working on Dakota for about three years now, primarily overseeing all daily operations, inspiring our team, caring for our teammates, and spearheading all of the M&A due diligence and integrations. And it's been a blast, Matt. I mean, this, this field is very exciting. There's a lot happening. And I've been able to take a lot of the things that I learned in a very challenging field, that being uh, medicine and healthcare, and bring some of that knowledge and perspective to what we do at Dakota, and, and we're having a good time. That's great. You say, wow, that's, you're coming from somewhere completely different, but your background is in organizational management, and I, I, I talk about that constantly on this podcast. That's the role of the COO. <laughs> it's not a technology job. You're not sitting in the server room plugging in wires. It's all about organizational management. So this is going to be a great discussion as we dive deeper into these topics. Jill, you're like me. You've been in this industry your entire career. Most notably, uh, you, you were at Charles Schwab. Tell us a little bit about your background and how this opportunity at Hightower came about. You're right. I have been in financial services my entire adult career, and this is the business I'll be in until until I retire. Mm-hmm. And I entered this business, to be honest, by accident. When I got out of college with my degree in advertising from, from Michigan State, I was a Spartan. I, of course, moved back home for, to take advantage of the free rent while I was looking for my big break in advertising. And after about three months of, of watching that nonsense, my dear mom um, gave me my first lesson in economics and announced I would start paying rent the following month, <laughs> um, which meant I had to go out and get the first job I could find. And that happened to be a receptionist job at a small broker dealer in downtown Minneapolis and started filling in for some of the sales assistants with the advisor teams. And when they were out and realized that I really loved this business and was shortly moved off the receptionist desk to the operations manager for the largest um, advisor group within the firm. Um, And I worked with them for a number of years where that was a great education because as an advisor group working with um, high net worth clients, we did it all. We started the first hedge fund. We did um, commission business. We did a fee business. We did IPOs. We did investment banking. It was a phenomenal way to learn this business. And that then took me to leading the operations department for three of the AIG broker dealers in sunny Phoenix, where I just took that to a bigger scale. And from there, realized that this business was getting more complicated all the time and deliberately took a sidetrack in my career path to take a a compliance role at Schwab on their custodian platform. And my thought process was if I was ever going to run a business and financial services with advisors, I really needed to understand the rules of the road and how the regulations and risk and all that work because I did not want to be beholden to someone to tell me how to do that. I didn't plan for that side road to last a decade, but it did. And um, during those 10 years at Schwab, it was a tremendous opportunity to work with all the advisors on the platform and actually was the only compliance person that the relationship management team was taking out to visit with clients to solve complex issues about exceptions. It was unheard of. 
and quickly realized, well, not so quick after 10 years, but realized there was, there was going to be a point I had to either stay in a compliance risk path or make my way back to the business side um, when I had uh, the great opportunity to, to do that and assumed a role with the advisor services business at Schwab to lead um, the complex solutions group and the risk group. And there I worked across the business and with many, many advisors who use that platform and really was the problem solver and managed the risk. And, you know, had taken that to just an incredible experience to where now I bring it all together. And last summer um, had the opportunity to join Hightower and come back to my roots. And all of those roles I've had um, through this 20 plus year career path, you know, now come together. And I feel like I'm, I'm home again, back on the business side, working in an advisor firm. The, the technology is different, but but the basics, the issues, they're all, they're all still the same. So this has been a great experience to come back to the side of the business. This is always my favorite question of all these podcasts because all of our guests, both of you included, of course, uh, everyone has had such great experiences. But interwoven in, in everyone's personal stories are these little things. You know, Mike says, well, my family, we didn't want to be in Chicago. We wanted to move back. So I had to figure something out. And, you know, your story, everyone can relate to that one. Well, my mom stopped paying my rent. I had to go figure something out. And then it just, these little tiny things just lead to these amazing careers and opportunities. I, I love hearing everybody's stories. So this is great. I was on my, my coronavirus soapbox earlier. I, I'm sorry for that. Um, but let me ask both of you how this transition to working from home has been for both of your organizations. You're, you're both running larger than average firms. So I'm curious what the adjustment's been like. And if, if at this point you even have plans yet to get back into the office, I'll go to Mike first. How have you guys been handling this new working environment? You know, coming from the field that I was in, learned over that 28 years that it's really important to plan for the worst and hope for the best. So we had our business continuity plan in place, of course, living here in South Florida with hurricanes, always a threat. We really had something very comprehensive in place, even for our offices in Ohio, New Hampshire, the Boston area. And so when we started seeing what was happening in January and February, my director of technology, Luke Baxter, and I really got together and started examining where everyone was relative to their home environments. We didn't really have to do very much. We ordered a few monitors for some people, maybe a couple laptops, but we really didn't miss a beat. Um, we uh, made a move to the home environment in the middle of March. That was about two weeks before Florida shut down. And we've been, we've been running seamlessly since that time. We created a very detailed reopening plan now, some of the, that plan needed to be modified for different regions of the country, and we paid close attention to what the governors were doing in those areas, as well as their public health systems. And so most of our offices are reopened. Some have half the staff working out of the office, others have full, and we're doing all the things that we need to do. We've had one person in the firm contract the virus to date. So far, everyone else is in good shape, and our, our productivity hasn't uh, been affected at all. Great. And Michelle, what's this experience like at Hightower over the past couple of months? You know, a lot of similarities to what Mike um, talks about. You know, I, too, had run teams in multiple locations in my previous experience at Schwab and had activated BCP plans numerous times as I had teams in Denver with blizzards and South Florida with hurricanes. So we, too, started extensive BCP drills early February, end of January, early February. So we were rehearsing and running mock people working from home for several weeks through February. And when things finally 
came about in March, they came out very quickly. And we too went remote in our corporate offices in Chicago and New York, right around the middle of March as well. We made those decisions very quickly and we didn't miss much of a beat either. We had people with equipment already um, during our drills. We'd identified monitors and things like that. So we were able to transition literally within a 24-hour period. It took us a couple of weeks to get the kinks worked out. I mean, luckily, we had a lot of technology infrastructure in place. So we did not have any backlogs or delays or anything like that in our operations area. And things have been running, you know, quite smoothly. Um, there was some things we focused on right away, so because we realized digital paperwork was more important than ever. And it's not just the digital from the custodian perspective. There's also digital from the high tower perspective. We obviously have our own client agreements and forms that our advisors need to use. So we very quickly mobilized on expanding our technical policy around digital, approving all digital tools that our key custodians offered for use. We also were able to create and approve and implement policy, allowing for our advisors to execute Hightower forms internally through digital means as well. So we were able to be very digital within a couple of weeks of going remote. We're now in our in the summer of, of planning what the return looks like from the corporate perspective. Um, we are not planning um, people to go back into the corporate offices before September. And we're now in the planning stages of PPEs and partitions and hand sanitizers and just the incredible amount of planning you have to do for that. And then we do have some of our advisory teams slowly going back in phased approaches in their offices. And those are plans that we're working on with them one by one, because to Mike's point, our teams are in 34 states and each state has a different dynamic going on right now. So we're running both of those in parallel. That's great. So that's internally how you've been dealing with it. Let's talk externally. We've talked about how both of your firms are very involved in M&A and onboarding of advisors. I'm curious what impact this has had on M&A activity at both of your firms. And then from, a, from an operational perspective, how have you convinced advisors that are looking to join your, your firms you know, that this is, quote, business as usual? So, Michelle, I'll, I'll go to you first. How have, how have you handled this from a deal structure, deal component? Well, deals are still on. We are, we are very active in the M&A space. We have eight or nine deals working on signing and closing right now over the summer. We haven't missed much of a beat in our pipeline, but we have had to really retool the entire M&A process, everything from how you prospect and you have those conversations about advisors looking to join our community, all the way to the integration piece, which I'm responsible for. Um, you know, we have hosted several virtual prospecting or what we call them VIP experiences where the executive team spends a day on, on a video experience with advisors considering to join us. And that's been quite successful. In this day and age, people are getting pretty used to the Zooms and the WebExes, and you can do a really good experience with that. We aren't planning to travel anytime soon for prospecting. So, you know, all the conversations you would have had in person, we're just moving to a digital platform. And on the integration front, we've gone through and retooled our entire integration process at this point. So it will all be virtual. We we have reorganized the training that we provide advisors when they join our community. You know, for example, I normally would send um, someone from my organization out to the advisor's office for a week or so to do hands-on training and help them with details. We've now converted all of that to a schedule um, to do it online, and you have to do that in smaller chunks, obviously, because it's very difficult for us as adults to sit in front of a video camera 
for eight hours. So we've had to change our schedule and sequencing of how we do training. We've created training videos. We're using a vendor called Brainshark, where there are small couple minute segments of how to do things. And those have been very effective, but we've just really had to go through and reorganize our whole process. And that took us probably 30, 45 days to nail down, but we're now back, you know, fully fully focused on deals. We're not missing much of a beach. We have, again, several closing this summer, but it is a process to go back and retool all of those things where you would have just put somebody on the road for a week or two to now come up with content and schedules of how you're going to deliver that through a virtual experience. That is a very specific project we did. Fantastic. And Mike, you've said there's been some adjustment from a deal-making perspective for you guys. Yeah, it's been a tremendous adjustment. In fact, you know, one of our biggest differentiators in Dakota is uh, or are the relationships that we we develop not only with our team members, those ongoing relationships, but new relationships. And so when we look at an M&A opportunity, we spend a great deal of time boots on the ground, getting to know the people, getting to know the staff, allaying any concerns or anxieties. All of that takes time and oftentimes a personal interaction. So this has been a big change. Now we've worked hard to adapt, obviously video conferencing and teleconferencing and whatever else it might be, we've we've done everything that we possibly could do to maintain that personal relationship, not only with how we're sourcing the opportunities, but also those relationships that we have in the pipeline and then our own staff. But it is a challenge. We travel quite a bit. We meet a lot of people personally, and it has definitely slowed us down. We still have a, a nice pipeline. We have a couple of opportunities right now that are look very, very exciting. And in fact, we think by the fall we might be closing on one. But again, it's just, it's very important for us to stay connected with these people. It's not all mechanical. The, the one thing that we're very thankful for throughout this process with respect to the perspective of sellers is we've had some great press coverage over the past couple of months. We had an article in Forbes that featured our insights and our preparation during this uh, pandemic. And then our CEO, Peter Ramondi, was just selected as a finalist for two wealth management awards, one for CEO of the year, the other for our approach to M&A. And and that's helped us with sellers and sort of validating the quality of, of how we run our business and our operations. So as Michelle was saying, we're just adjusting, adapting, and I think this is, is going to be the way it's going to be for the next six months or longer. So we'll just forge ahead and, and um, hopefully things will continue to develop the, the way we had planned. You know, Mike brings up a really good point about, you know, part of the, the, the lead generation process is really making sure your 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 brand is out there that you're heard in the marketplace and we too had to keep focused on that and continue with um, figuring out a way to host virtual events you know we're, we're going to host one here um, at the end of July our first true virtual conference type of event we're still trying to get our messages out there at the same time when you're retooling your process continuing to make sure you follow up with your your brand in your marketing program is important also. Just to echo what Michelle is saying, we have our director of marketing and communication and you know that word communications has been so critical to the point where she's created a formal communications plan for our internal engagements and external. Uh, we've really had to think it through so that we're protecting our brand, we're protecting our reputation and we're staying connected because staying connected now 
is is looks very different than it used to. So you, you bring up branding. One of the key components of successful M&A transactions is obviously the ability to maximize the synergies between the buyer and seller. And from a branding perspective, I think both of you take different approaches at both of your firms. And branding is always a big component of the negotiations between a buyer and seller. Michelle, when an advisor or a firm joins Hightower, how do you handle their existing brand? You know, brand is a very uh, personal decision to our advisors. And we're certainly comfortable to let advisors keep their brand if that's what they like. I mean, we try to be brand agnostic, if you will. We have advisors who join us who are very passionate about keeping their brand. We're totally fine with that and support that. And we also have advisors that, that join our community who then want to use our brand in Hightower. We just refreshed our brand here last year um, with new design and colors and look and feel. Um, and some advisors have wanted to take advantage of that. We're very open to that. Um, but, we, you know, we do have certain things that give the economy of scale for advisors joining us. We do not bend on. And the key thing to that is the ADV. Um, advisors joining us join our ADV. We administer a lot of their technology. We administer their HR, their benefits. Um, their 401k plans, things of that nature. With those economies of scale, clients and, and employees of the advisor firm will see the word Hightower in different venues, whether it's at the bottom of a form or on a paycheck sub for their employees. So regardless of what decision the advisor makes, we then spend a lot of time customizing their integration plans to address all those nuances. And when they choose to keep their own brand, we get very detailed about how then to promote the new partnership with Hightower, um, our chief marketing officer comes in and helps them build a strategy around that. We spend time with their teams explaining that their culture, their autonomy in the office will feel very much the same as it always has. We don't take on a touch point to their clients. They maintain that spirit with their clients. We are very flexible when it comes to their brand and their passion around keeping it. And then, Mike, I think Dakota Wealth has a different perspective. By having the advisor or the, or the firm take on Dakota's branding, how do you believe that adds to the synergies of the merger? Yeah, we do approach it differently. So we're very passionate about our brand and what it means. The word Dakota is actually derived from the Sioux Nation, actually more specifically from the Lakota language. And the word Dakota means friend and ally. And that's the kind of firm we're looking for. And we're looking for their interest in feeling that way about us as well and our team. So it's very important for us that they put on our brand, whether it be on a hat or stationery or, or in their office. We did our uh, Springside Partners acquisition. Karina Diamond, who's our chief experience officer in Akron, just had her office completely redone and has Dakota all over the place and artwork very similar to what we have in our home office here in Palm Beach Garden. Brett Orvieto, who's in our Fort Lauderdale office, did the same thing with, with his office. You walk in, it looks very similar to our headquarters office. We even have an office in New Hampshire, Marilyn Rios. She did the same thing, put our logo up there. It's just, we all feel more connected that way. It's part of our culture, part of our vibe. Everyone feels like they're part of the family. And that's, you know, what we look for when we go out and, and look for uh, a possible merger. You know, both Pete and I have been on the sell side. Each of us once in our career have sold our firms one time each. And we have been through the pain of seeing our baby that we grew and nurtured 
sort of disappear overnight with that acquisition. And we didn't want that to happen in Dakota. So what we've done is, is on our website, we've, we've created this historical timeline. So when we do an acquisition, we memorialize the firm that we're merging with. We memorialize their name, their history, and we put it on our website so that it can, it can live in perpetuity. Very important to us. And then we're very slow and very careful about transitioning. Some of the firms that we've acquired have wanted to do it very quickly and change everything. Others have wanted to do it more slowly and one thing at a time. We don't have any mandate with that regard, and we're very sensitive to it. But, but it is important to us that, that people are working towards wearing the same colors and the same logo. Well, in, in terms of culture, that is what you're really talking about. One of the things I always love talking about on, on this podcast is the COO's role in, in people management. I think I said it earlier, um, a lot of people think that it's, it's really, that the COO role is really just a technology role, but I think 75% of the COO's job is tied up in HR. So Mike, can you speak to the people side of your job and what impact you as the COO have on the culture of the organization? Sure. When Pete approached me about joining him and envisioning Dakota and putting together the pieces. One thing we discussed right out of the box was you know, how we were going to run this firm. I came from a concierge medical business model in, in many of the things I did. Pete has been known for his high-touch approach, but we both were on the same page, many things, but this thing really most importantly, and that is we both believe that our team members, our staff, our partners, they come first before our clients. And I know that sounds strange and and may rub people the wrong way, but we firmly believe that if our team members are getting everything that they need, if they're jazzed every day that they come into the firm because their needs and expectations are being being attended to, we're sure by default that the clients are getting extraordinary service. And that's the way we've always run our firm. So thankfully, he and I were on the same page and that's what we've done. So We're very serious about that. Um, Anything from professional development to someone's personal challenges and everything in between are my number one priority in my number one priorities in operations. Everyone knows they can call me 24-7 any day of the week, and I'm here for them. And it's just how we run Dakota. So I would say about 80% of what I do throughout the day is personal interaction, helping someone envision their professional path or dealing with an issue, could be HR benefit, could be workflow, could be anything, but it's really people-driven. And I think my background as a caregiver has helped me enormously in this area. I, I really love it every day. That's really interesting. And Michelle, you and I have discussed this in the past. You've, you've said that, that given today's current environment with employees, uh, displaced from the office, it has made you devote even more time to managing the people. Um, so, so talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, Mike, Mike's right. I mean, this business at its heart is is all about people. It's, it's all about the relationship. And, you know, it, it's interesting during the first three months of COVID and working remote, I felt like my world was upside down and that I was used to spending so much of my time, to your point, focused on managing people, managing relationships with our advisors, managing relationships with our custodians, really 100% dealing with people and the issues um, that were on their plates. And then the first three months we were remote, 
suddenly it was a lot of technology and technology became almost three quarters of my day for the first several months, the first few months we were out and I missed the people part of it. I was glad to get back to the people part of it because after we got our digital policies made, we got people settled in. Now it's how do you make this work day in and day out? And there's just different issues that come up in this environment than before. You know, something as simple as when our advisor team would make an error on a client account at a custodian, suddenly getting a hold of the right people to get that fixed and you can't just see a client and get something signed, how you get authorization, suddenly you have to do that in a different way. And so I'm back now to spending most of my time with people and managing things, but you have to do it in a very different way. The issues that they bring to you for help are very different. You know, we actually engaged um, the Fair Institute to come in and talk to the executive leadership team at Hightower about how we should approach and evolve our management style with our advisors and with our with our teams in this environment of COVID and the stress that goes with it. And you have to you have to approach that very differently than you've done in the past. You know, in the past when you would see these people every day, you would get a good vibe, yep, they're good. You would you know, you would have your pleasantries. But now you have to be much more deliberate and thoughtful on are you people really okay? Or are they struggling with something? There's personal dynamics going on here that normally would have no bearing on work, suddenly do. You know, we have associates with young children who have no summer programs. And because our corporate offices are in big cities, they had to find a place to work remotely for the summer. That just wasn't conducive to having them stay in the cities with with small kids and no programs. And so we've had to work with our staff to, in some cases, work from other locations for the summer while we're working from home. You have people that need different scheduling based on trying to do homeschooling. You have people that need um, different support because they have elderly parents that they now have to provide more help to so they don't have to go out and get supplies. So you have to engage with your teams on a very different basis than you had in the past to really be there for them to work through all of this. And I feel like we've gotten into a good rhythm of that. And now we're really back to focused on continuing with our performance management. You know, we have a very robust performance management program at Hightower with quarterly check-ins, development plans, annual performance reviews. Those things are all still ongoing and they're more important than ever because they give managers a, a key touch point to have a really heart-to-heart -heart conversation with employees about not just living in the moment of COVID, but reminding them, hey, you still have a career here. Let's continue on building your skills. Let's look to the future. I know we can't send you out to that class, but that class is now online. Why don't you do that? Figuring out ways to keep teams engaged. You know, when we first went remote, the, the Zoom digital happy hour was the thing. And we did, you know, we did that. We did um, bingo. We did theme meetings with you wore sunglasses to a meeting or hat meeting. That was all really fun to keep people engaged for the first probably two months and then really ran its course. And so now you're having to look for different ways to keep teams feeling connected. And so with it being summer, for example, we've kicked off a team walking meeting where instead of doing a video call for a regular standing team meeting um, on video, everybody puts their headphones on and they all go for a walk during that meeting. So we've had to be really creative about building those touch points so teams don't feel isolated and they can still um, have that synergy working with each other. But it's different. You know, you have to really think through how to stay connected with, with your folks. And one benefit I will say of all this is for me personally with my direct reports, I talk to them more 
now than when they sat next door to me. And we joke about that because we end every day in my team with a leadership team check-in. And it's just time for us to talk and get caught up on our day. That's time we just didn't take before. You know, we always had a, more of a staff meeting to talk about business items, but really that daily connectivity is something we all look forward to every day. So, you know, the people aspect of this is more important than ever to keep people hopeful and keep them engaged. You really have to focus on it. The virtual walking meeting, that's a that's one I haven't <laughs> I haven't come across. I, you read a lot of things about the, the benefits of walking meetings in a non-pandemic world, but to make them virtual, that's I love that idea. Idea. That's a new one for me. That's great. Well, like I said, you know, the first two months of doing all of these video fun things, they were great, but they just ran their course. And so now we've really had to start getting creative for people to have those touch points. And so that this is one of our first first um, forays into that. I have my I had my first one here the other day, and it was actually a lot of fun to tell you the truth. But I you know, it. one challenge you have in the virtual walking team meeting is is the mask. You have to get your headphones, your earpods situated just quite right. So <laughs> you can understand each other through the mask. Yep. You're out walking. Yep. <laughs> got it done. We got it done. That's great. I really, that's a fantastic idea. So we've, we've talked about the COO's impact on M&A. We've talked about the COO's impact on culture. To wrap up, I'd like to talk about another key aspect of the COO's job, and that is freeing up the advisor's time to do what they do best, which in my mind, most advisors should be focused on client service and prospecting. So Michelle, I know Hightower spends a lot of time with advisors to ensure they're focusing their energy on the most productive tasks. Talk to us a little bit about your views around all this. Yeah, we do. I mean, we focus a lot of energy to give support to both our advisors and what we call our field professionals or the operational members of the advisors team supporting them. We give support to both groups. And on the advisor side, we do promote um, how important it is for them to focus on growth of their business, servicing their clients. That is really their, their mojo, if you will. So we, we approach that from several angles. One, we're very focused on value-added service type support. One example of that is just today, we announced the addition of Stephanie Link, who joins us as our chief investment strategist. She will oversee our outsourced chief investment officer function. So we do have that value-added service to help advisors outsource investment management voice so they can, again, focus on growing their business and their client relationships. We've launched an education series called Elevate, and there's several modules you can take in that. One is strictly a growth-dedicated module to help advisors create a plan to grow their business. I'm sponsoring and presenting um, a series. I'm using digital to uh, build scale and efficiency to your business. We offer regular consultation with our advisor teams on managing their P&Ls and how to forecast costs, how to think strategically in, in this environment where it's more important than ever and look to the future. And so our, most of our advisors teams have dedicated advisor success is the team we call to help them review those things. And we're, we're always looking to engage with them and support them on, again, their own internal marketing strategies. And we've launched a platform called Engage which is powered by Snappy Kraken in the background, and, and there's custom content on there just for Hightower that allows advisors to really use a digital platform to power their marketing endeavors. And it's, it's been an incredible 
game changer for us and brings so much more opportunities to advisors to really launch a robust marketing strategy in a very efficient way, very unique content that's customized to their business. So, you know, our core, one of our core focuses, as I say, is really those value-added services to get advisors focused on their business and how to grow it. Great. And Mike, I've heard you discuss this topic of alleviating advisors' time on, on other podcasts you've done. What do you think of the division of labor between the advisor and a COO, director of operations type role? Yeah, so we, as you know, Matt, in our previous conversations, believe very strongly on having a group of people that are focused on running the business and those who are working in the business. And so we have a team of seven people in operations that have no client-facing responsibilities whatsoever. Their primary responsibility is to make sure that anybody that has a client-facing responsibility is fully supported and has everything that they need. Now, sometimes when we do an acquisition, we run into, this happens oftentimes, we run into advisors who are wearing multiple hats. Some are involved in compliance issues. Some are involved in administratively. And many of them hate doing those things. Really what they want to do is they want to service their clients. They want to grow their business. They want to interact with their clients and and, and help them uh, grow their wealth. So the way we approach this is very much the way Pete and I approached our relationship. So when we came together, I had served as CEO of for, for 20 years in the, in the firms that I was running and developing. And here I am going to be supporting Pete as his chief operating officer. So it gave me a real exciting opportunity to support him in the way that I had always hoped to be supported in the role that I had prior to joining him. And so what we did was I said, listen, we're going to take a piece of paper. We're going to draw a line down the middle. And on the left side, I want you to write down all the things that you love doing. And on, and on the other side, I want you to write down all the things that you hate to do. And basically, my job description became everything that he hated to do. I wanted him to come in every day doing those things that jazzed him, made him excited about coming into work every day. And those things that he didn't enjoy doing, I was going to take off his plate. Now, maybe I didn't do them personally, but I was going to find someone who could be on my team to, to get those things done. We do the same thing with our advisors. You know, We, we really encourage them to sit with us and, and talk it through and identify the things that they truly love. Because typically the things that they love are the things that they're strong at and vice versa. And the things that they hate are the things that they're weakest at. And we try to take as much off their plate as possible. Unfortunately, some people find their relevance in being busy and doing lots of things. And it takes time for them to relinquish those, those unnecessary tasks to us. But that always happens in time, and, and what they find is that they're usually much more productive and much more successful, and we're more successful as a company. So that's how we go about it. And whatever the resources we need to put in place to support that, we'll get it done. I love it. Fantastic. Well, you two are so personally impressive, and obviously both of your firms are industry leaders, so I've really been humbled to have both of you on the podcast today. I can't thank you both enough, so thank you, Michelle and Mike, for sharing your experiences and, and your thoughts with us. Oh, thanks very much, Matt. Appreciate it. Enjoyed the time. Yeah, Matt, thank you, and, and enjoyed being a part of this and, and sharing the time with Michelle. Great. Thanks. Well, that is a wrap on episode 19. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I'm excited that our next episode will be our 20th. I know that doesn't sound like a very large number, but when we're only doing these once a month, number 20 is a nice little milestone for us. So please tune in next month, and we will talk to everyone soon.